Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Macro View. I guess you could say a special late night edition of the Macro View here on, uh, it's actually Sunday morning, Saturday night at midnight, Sunday morning at midnight, however you want to put it. Uh, here coming to you live from downtown LA. It is a Saturday night. Uh, you may hear the occasional drunk people, group of drunk people walking by uh, yelling. So just be prepared for that. Tonight's episode is uh, about education. And, you know, people always talk about education. I don't know if it's something that you could, I kind of titled it uh, and, and how to fix it and uh, myths and other lies and, or something along those lines. Don't remember exactly what the name was, not as, as important. Um, in the slideshow tonight, we've got about either 15 or 16 slides on, uh, first couple of slides, kind of just talk about cost and give some examples of achievement, how achievements flatlined. And, um, there's all sorts of comparisons you can find out there. You can find comparisons that look at the U S favorably compared to other countries. You can find comparisons that look at the U S unfavorably. America is still one of the most innovative countries on earth. So, you know, we're doing something, doing something right. But, um, as you can say, see, there's vastly different per pupil uh, spending. This is in slide one, vastly different. Uh, I'll probably go ahead and, and, and tweet these slides out while we're talking, so I might, might talk a little bit slowly. But uh, it's a vast, vastly different um, uh, spending from each state. D.C. and New York State uh, have the most spending. Um, and then second, in, in, you know, coming up behind them, uh, you've got Alaska spends a lot in education. Uh, New Jersey, Connecticut, Vermont, Wyoming spends a ton in education, uh, given how big it is. Um, but this first chart, one of the things I really liked about this chart uh, is that uh, it shows the breakdown of where the money actually goes. So you have instructional employee salaries or basically teacher salaries, teacher benefits, um, then you, you have pupil support, instruction staff support, general admin, school admin, other. Um, and that, that's the first chart. So it kind of just gives you a distribution where the most money is being spent on education. As a lot of people know, I think it's pretty much common knowledge. New York State and D.C. are not shining examples of what you want out of an education example, uh, education system. They're actually both pretty far down on the list in, in terms of uh, academic achievement, in terms of uh, dropout rates and things like that. And then the second chart just goes over some basic truths. And that's pretty much where I'm going to start tonight's show. I uh, just want to talk about some of the things that I think, you know, we either just miss and, and by missing it, I, I'd like to think that it's probably intentional. We're not just uh, literally forgetting this huge part of the equation. This is just something that's missed politically, you know, on purpose because people don't want to kind of face the facts that sometimes are hard to face. Um, but these basic truths include, uh, and, and the basic truths are not necessarily limited to this, but uh, includes the fact that IQ does matter. Um, you know, different intelligence levels, uh, 
definitely make a difference in people's lives. And uh, going forward, most likely it's going to make more of a difference in people's lives as uh, jobs that require really high ability to retain knowledge and jobs that rely on uh, ultra-creative use of very deep math and sciences, um, basically skill sets that, you know, one of the fundamentals of that skill skill set is either really high mathematical intelligence uh, or, or something else that's very rare and is very sought after in today's high-tech uh, world of information and, you know, world where you know, engineers get paid a lot of money to do a lot of really cool things and invent things that make the rest of our lives better. So IQ matters. The smartest people t- are, are, are making more money uh, from an income standpoint. It doesn't necessarily correlate to wealth, but, you know, we talked about that a little bit in the first first uh, two episodes, that how income doesn't necessarily correlate to wealth. And in the second episode, um, we talked a little bit about the higher education system and uh, whether or not people should go to school. We'll touch on that very, very b- briefly tonight, but that's not what tonight's show is about. So if you want to hear more about college and what, what college should be like and how, how we can fix it, how we can drive the cost down, go listen to the episode two uh, of the macro video. Second basic truth, kids advance at different paces. And, oh, really quickly, to go back to the first basic truth, there's multiple different types of intelligence. Um, there's mo- I think there's eight categories of intelligence, and, and within those eight categories of intelligence – uh, basically, athletic ability is one of those things, and athletic ability is highly sought after today. If you're if you're an exceptional athlete, you're pro, you you have a, you know we have a system that will foster you. We spend a lot of community resources and social capital trying to make sure that our best athletes get through <clears throat> the stepping stones to professional athletic success. Um, you know, with as few barriers in in the way as possible. So there's a number of different types of intelligence, but high levels of intelligence are becoming more and more sought after in a highly competitive world and a world that demands, um, you know, a world where we demand progress. And at the same time that we demand progress, um, you know, there's fewer and fewer things that haven't been delivered. So you got to have ultra intelligent, ultra creative people to even come up with new solutions to begin with. And then you've got to have people that have really good man- managerial skills to be able to there's all sorts of different types of intelligence and different roles for people with different types of intelligence. Basically what I'm saying is that that matters, that that just that base raw fundamental of IQ and which IQ, you know, a child uh, may happen to have higher uh, category in that matters as well. Kids advance at different paces at different stages uh, in life and in different subjects as well. That's, that's really important. You know, not everybody is great at everything and not everybody is great at one thing or, or, or another. You know, different people have different interests and, and quite frankly, might just perform better at <clears throat> certain things. And uh, some things just might make more sense to them, some subjects. Um, <clears throat> kids have passions. And when they're in school, they also have natural abilities. They have passions and natural abilities that should be fostered when they're in school. That's part of the job of our education system is to foster the abilities, the natural abilities and the passions that children's ha- children have and make sure that those turn into something that is, um, you know, logistically possible and, and, and something that's realistic in terms of, of uh, you know, 
the world that we live in where just about virtually anything is. I mean, look, a lot of people didn't imagine we'd have the technology we have today 30, 35 years ago. So, um, but what we need to do is foster children. We need to allow them to kind of, and you want them to have the base round knowledge, but you need them to kind of be able to start to specialize at a really young age and, and, and foster their passion for certain subjects until it runs out. And if it runs out on its own, um, and if it stays, if it's a fire that keeps being lit and relit throughout the child's life, maybe they go on to become really successful in life or they go on to have a very fulfilling career um, or they go on to have a very fulfilling life, you know, based on pursuing that passion. But maybe that maybe their passion changes. And it's, it's also part of the, you know, the education system's job to then, uh, you know, relight the fire for the new passion and, and show a path forward that's logistically realistic for children to be able to grow into adults and pursue, um, you know, a career that they're, they're able to support themselves and they're able to feel fulfilled in and uh, put in, a, you know, are willing and, and happy to put in a full day's work every day. Third basic truth or fourth basic truth, equality and in interests, interests, intelligence, and ability does not exist, and we cannot teach to that. Let me repeat that. Equality and in interests, intelligence, and ability do not exist, and we cannot teach to that. And basically what I'm saying is you cannot have a one-size-fits-all cookie-cutter version of education. You need to allow students and their abilities and where they are and what they're doing and what they're passionate about and uh, the, the current reading levels that they have, the, the, the math, you need to let kids kind of go at their own pace, basically. They're able to. They're able to they're w and willing to. And, you know, one of the areas where we're really, really, really going vitally wrong with our education system is by allowing children to get bored in school because they've accomplished what they needed to accomplish for the moment. And as a result of our cookie-cutter cookie system, they do not have something to move on to until the rest of the class moves on. So you've got to figure out a way to keep their mind stimulated. You've got to figure out a way to keep their mind stimulated. And part of that is going to be allowing children to kind of have these side passions and side projects and incorporate that into school. That's, a, that's something that teachers should look to do. Like try to find each kid probably has a little bit of passion. Maybe a couple kids have a similar passion. Maybe you could pair them up and teach teamwork at the same time. There's all sorts of things you can do in the classroom, um, but there, children have different interests. Not all kids are the same. Anybody who's taught in education could tell you different kids have different interests at every stage of their life. Intelligence, different kids have different intelligence levels for different intelligence categories. And virtually everybody is really good at something. and We just got to find that something and foster it. Ability None of these things are, are equal. doesn't mean that some people don't have really good natural abilities or, or everybody doesn't have really good natural abilities at something. You know, I don't want to say everybody, but most people have really good abilities at something. Um, but they're not equal. Not everybody has the same ability across every single uh, you know, task that they have to, to accomplish, no matter what it is. They don't have the same ability to do that. So... And we shouldn't be building an education system around trying to foster that type of world. I don't even know if I'd want to live in that type of world. What would it be like? 
be a bunch of drones walking around doing exactly the same thing. And we, I guess it just boils down to at that point, what you're assigned to do. So I, you know, I don't, I don't think I want to live in that world. Uh, equality it doesn't exist for a reason. And I'm not talking about in terms of the way that government should treat people. Government should treat people equally and people should treat people equally. People should respect people no matter what it is they do and no matter how much money they have or no matter what their level of education is. You know, individuals should have respect for one another. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is the, the pure fact that people are different. They are not equal. They're not the same. They have different abilities when it comes to different things. I'll give you an example. I may be good at math. I, I, I know absolutely nothing about cars. I've tried to learn before. It didn't make a lot of sense to me. It's just not something that I'm good at. I'm sure if I took the time to really understand the inner workings of, of an engine, I'd be able to. And in, in, in technology class way back when, when I was in middle school, I, I kind of got it. But being able to do the physical labor, I'm kind of clumsy with my hands. It's not, it's not something that I have the ability to do. What makes me better than that person? Nothing. It's, we're just not equal when it comes to that. Maybe I'm a little bit better at math. Maybe I'm not. But I'm just saying, maybe if, if I'm a little bit better at math, this person's really good at, at, at working on cars. Those are both very respectable things. And, uh, you know, we're different. We're not equal. We don't have equal abilities. We probably are different when it comes to intelligence. I might have a, you know, higher arithmetic intelligence. Maybe they have better spatial intelligence. Uh, that explains why they're able to work with their hands a little bit better. And, uh, you know, I just, probably don't have an interest in it. We, we likely have very different interests. So, you know, all of these things are, 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 are coming into play. Um, these aren't just, you know, people aren't born wanting to do the exact same thing and then grow up and decide to do different things. And, you know, teaching isn't going to get a world of that. People want to do different, different people have different interests, different people have different intelligence uh, levels at different in different categories and different people have different abilities. Period. Uh, standardized basic knowledge is essential in early education, but beyond that, children should be able to ch- choose their own pace and prepare for their careers and have the time and energy to to adjust course if they decide to. When you're young, if you decide, you know, I'm going to pursue this path of being a firefighter, and then you realize I don't really want to be a firefighter, you know. I found interest in, in something totally different from that. And I want to really pursue that. And maybe somebody else had an interest in something different and then decided that they want to pursue a career path of, of being a firefighter. So, you know, there's got to be room for people to change. But what I'm saying is that that should be, that should be happening a lot earlier. That shouldn't be happening when you're, you know, 26, 27 years old. You're a little bit too old at that point start deciding what you want to do for your career. I mean, I wouldn't say you're, it's, you're never too old and people should, should change and be able to change even if they're displaced from a career due to technology. Uh, you know, it should be fairly easy to, to make a career change. And, and uh, you know, I don't really understand why it's not. Um, I'm not saying that it's going to happen overnight, but over the course of two to three years, you can easily become, get back to a journeyman status in a brand new career. And then from there, you're a few years away from a master status. So and, and everybody follows the exact same career path, no matter, no matter what industry, what profession they're in. 
every single person starts off as an apprentice, they move on to a journeyman, and then hopefully they aspire one day to become a master. And, and it, no matter what you're doing, you can do that again if you somehow get displaced. But we should start the process of true passion finding much earlier on. Customization is the key. We've got to customize education and tailor education to the students. And the best way to do that is to give teachers the freedom because they pretty much already do that. But now, right now they have to do it within the guidelines of kind of keeping everything on track, given the standards and making sure kids are prepared for the test. If there's not something um, you know, that, that, that a child is currently working on for the class, just give them some standardized test practices uh, or practice material for the standardized test and let them run with that. And uh, this next point that I'm going to make is, is one that I'm sure a lot of people think of time to time but don't really put a lot of emphasis on. But in my opinion, it's probably the most important fix in our education system if we really want to get down the line and, and make progress as a society. And that's to teach basic logic and reasoning skills, basic economics and per- personal finances. I think that you know, those four subjects, whether they are by themselves as part of that, that early education or whether they are added on, you know, to a subject, you could add economics into social sciences. You could have personal finance all throughout math, especially early on. Uh, basic logic and reasoning skills can be part of a, a general language arts class. You teach oratory skills, you teach logic, you teach argument, you teach debate. Um, you know, those could all kind of be lumped into, into part of that, but that's got to be a part of the basic curriculum. It's got to be a part of the basic cur- curriculum, and teachers that do teach it should be praised. Uh, vocational opportunities need to be presented as respectable alternatives, respectable opportunities for people um, where they can earn actually a very, very decent wage, much better than what a lot of people earn with a bachelor's degree. You can make more money on, in a vocation than you can with a lot of bachelor's degrees. Okay. That, I mean, I think a lot of people know that at this point, electricians make over a hundred grand a year. Most cities, uh, there's a number of bachelor degree professions where you don't reach a hundred grand in your career. There's a number of master's degrees professions where you don't reach a hundred grand in your career. Try being a, a, you know, social science, social science scientist working in a prison. Um, you know, or, or try being a, uh, you got a bachelor's in psychology and you're a social worker for the government that you chose to do that as, as typically the, people choose to do that because they feel it's a, a you know, it's a, it's a worthy career that they get to reach out and help other people and they actually enjoy the career. And sometimes it's used as a um, kind of a launching platform for people who have political ambitions as well, similar to how a public defender's office or a prosecutor's office can be somewhat of a uh, launching pad for a ter- you know, recent graduates who have political aspirations one day. But vocational opportunities should be presented, should be presented as respectable, as well-earning much earlier on. Kids should know about those opportunities. They shouldn't be guided down the death trap of a four-year degree if they are not somebody who's going to enjoy a career in which you need a four-year degree. If you want to have a career in which you need a four-year degree and you want to have that knowledge, go for it. 
but do not teach children that it's a necessity in order to be respectable. I don't think that that's a good way to, to do things. And vocational opportunities and vocational professions are highly respectable and you can make a really good wage. Um, kind of touched on the next point. That's episode two. You should really go back and listen to episode two. If you haven't, kind of talk a lot, show a lot of the numbers and talk a lot about the numbers of how many people have degrees, how many people are going to have degrees, how many jobs are going to be available for people who have degrees and all of that kind of stuff. And it's a really good conversation. So uh, military, Peace Corps, entrepreneurship, traveling on your own dime, all of these are great expert, experiential training options as well as school, as well as school. Going, uh, you know, this is post-high post, uh, uh, school. Going into the military or joining the Peace Corps, starting a business, likely going to fail. That's okay. But doing it when you're young, when you have a lot of energy and you have, you have the ability to retain the knowledge and, and, you know, really remember those stories and enjoy the ride. Uh, traveling on your own dime. All of these are great options for gaining experience that's going to prepare you for a career. And so is school. And in, in regards to young men in particular, you'll be much better suited going back to school post the military or post a Peace Corps, post trying to start a business and failing, being 24, 25, being more grounded, um, you know, having a little bit better picture on life as to what it is exactly that you want to do. And you're going to have plenty of time in life to build your wealth. I promise you'll have plenty of time if you go at that age, it's much better age to go back to go to college, to start going to college. And finally, I want to make this point. We've got to remember who we are teaching, which is young people, for what purpose we are teaching them, which is to create a better future. And the limited tool set of the past in an ever-changing world that you, we use to teach them. We use historical studies and writings and, and the things that have already been learned to teach them. That's a basis for them to go on and either expand upon or debunk. That's what it is. So, you know, it's a limited tool set. And that's why I want to go back, you know, to the middle of this, this first slide. Basic logic, reasoning skills, and, and having a general understanding of, of, of what we know about economics and personal finance. Those are really important basic skill, skill sets that every kid should learn from first grade to, to eighth grade. There should be, you know, early on, there should be those little basic. And then maybe when you get into high school and you start having, you know, alternative uh, electives, you present some of these additional classes as kind of a mandatory elective. You get an elective, but it's got to be one of these. You know, maybe that's later on when they get into high school. Um, the second chart kind of shows similar to what our first uh, slide showed, the first chart, uh, you know, it showed by state the amount of money they spent in different areas that they spent it on a per-pupil basis. This chart shows on a per-pupil basis uh, by ma major metropolitan areas, uh, the principal school district, the high school graduation rate, and the per-student expenditures in that school district. Boston, Boston, Massachusetts has the highest they get about 57% graduation rates. Not fantastic. Uh, this is from, from high school, high school graduation rate. And you can kind of go down the line. You can see a bunch in there. My, my hometown of Miami is in there. And, and uh, my current uh, city of residence, Los Angeles and the LA USD, the, um, 
the well-known and, and uh, very poorly regarded LAUSD uh, is on there as well, and, and it, it performs pretty poorly, as we would expect. Uh, Detroit is uh, amongst the worst. They're number seven in regards to spending. They've got a 25% graduation rate. Um, I'm not sure if that number is potentially skewed by a bunch of people moving out of Detroit while they're in high school and they're just not counted as graduates. Um, but you've got you've got a number of uh, of cities on here that are sub 50 percent, that are sub 60 percent, that are sub 70 percent. Um, I think 70 percent is probably generally about where you're going to be, you know, because I think when we when we did our episode two, and you can kind of go back and watch that. There's about 20% of jobs that are out there that are decent-paying jobs that don't require even a high school diploma, and, and you'll you'll end up with people who just don't feel as though school is for them, and they just need to go into a, a work path, and they might find something that they're really passionate about, and they have an opportunity to have a very respectable and dignified life without a high school diploma. It might be harder for them at, at first, but they, they have an opportunity, so... And then um, I have a, a series of some charts from a heritage study. Uh, what this study showed was that you know, total federal spending and state spending funds have been going way up, and same with local spending for education. And, and really, if you look at, look at slide number six that we have running in our slideshow, you know, achievement's about the same. You, know, you had a little bit of a peak in you know, age 13 achievement uh, and reading scores in, you know, the mid-90s, early 90s. Um, other than that, it's basically flatlined. You've had a pickup from 2000 to 2004, um, you know, but that was kind of coming off of a, a low that was in 1990 for age nine. This is age nine. It's the third uh, line on the right-hand side of slide six the uh, purple line age nine kind of had a spike up in the eighties and then dropped down into the nineties and then another kind of rising up into, uh, uh, you know, the early thousands. So basically flat though, kind of stayed right where they are. Maybe you've maybe gotten about a 15% increase in, in, in achievement for age nine. You've maybe gotten a five or 6% increase in age 13 and, Looks like you may be either exactly flat since 1971 at age 17, maybe a little bit higher, maybe a little bit lower. I can't really tell from this exact chart, but it's basically flat. Um, and then the next the number of charts that I have are really interesting. If you actually get a chance to watch the slideshow, basically what these are, is this is a Kansas State 8th grade graduation uh, exam. Is the actual questions. You can kind of just Google this. It's kind of widely available now. Um, but these are the actual exam questions from an eighth grade graduation exam in the state of Kansas. I believe it is the Salinas County. Uh, and, and I mean, I would venture to say that a lot of people probably couldn't answer a, a number of these. Um, at least, you know, in the time, I mean, back then in the time, depends on how much they wanted. I mean, it does also doesn't, you know, I mean, these kids were taught at the time how to do this stuff in a way. So it depends on how, you know, big each of these action items were. But, you know, like think about the math back then, there's no calculators. And uh, I don't know why I put 1985 on the title. It's not 1985. It's 1895. 
Um, it's the 1895 arithmetic eighth grade exam. Uh, I think I put, might have put 1985 for all those. So that is 1895, just to clarify, not, not 1985. So the question that we have to ask ourselves is if, if, if the money isn't helping, if all the extra money that we're spending on education isn't increasing achievement, we really want to drive an increase in achievement. That's what we want to do. We want to drive an increase of educational achievement or academic achievement uh, amongst our children. And that's the purpose behind all the money that we're spending on it. Um, you know, if money is not the answer, what is? I've got a little in the slideshow slides, uh, 11 and 12 after the eighth grade exam, just kind of says, brace yourself. Competition. Competition. It's something that we embrace in, in almost every other aspect of life. And the one area that we really don't, and I just don't understand why, is in uh, is in education. I, what I would propose we actually do is is essentially turn local school boards into nothing more than real estate management companies. Totally liberalize the education system and allow teachers to be teachers, to teach students, to gather a classroom, to market their services based on the, the specialized grade or, or subject that they want to teach. And if they're a subject teacher for high school, voluntarily partner with other teachers to teach other subjects to create teaching teams and to provide the money directly to the parents and allow the parents to go and choose the teachers. Not even so much the school, but the actual teachers. And this is, you know, a lot of people just kind of say, oh, you're for a voucher program. It's not exactly a voucher program. It's a lot more radical than a voucher program. I'm basically saying teachers would rent classrooms, certified licensed teachers. If you want to go through that process, I'd be fine with kind of anybody giving, a, giving it a shot. Um, because I think that you would find a lot of people who would be very incredible and influential teachers for children who are not currently credentialed or certified and they're just not going to go through that process. But if you open it up, you might get more, even more competition. Let's start here, right? Let's just start here where teachers would rent the classroom, would market their services and their skill set and what they're good at, would build out their classroom. You know, I mean, this is a system that could work really, really well. Teachers would have to teach really well. Parents would have to know that they're good teachers that their kids are learning in order for them to choose them as a teacher. And on top of that, teachers would have a combined benefit of not having too small of a classroom size, not having too big of a classroom size, because guess what? Their job becomes way too hard if they have way too big of a classroom size. So they're going to try to keep their job at a manageable level, even despite the money. The money at a certain point, if you had 50 kids in class, isn't really worth it. So they're going to they're gonna try to keep the classroom sizes very small, be able to teach their kids really well, because those kids are going to go home. Their, kids, their parents are going to be like, wow, you're really learning a lot in school. They're going to tell their friends, and now their friends are going to enroll their kids in their class the next year and the next year and the next year. So they're not going to have 50 students, because then they're not going to be able to teach all 50 students. Maybe eventually with this model you would have kind of more virtual and you have really expert teachers. And if they were making a lot of money from this, they could hire assistants that would go and actually do private tutoring for the students, or you could have a classroom they set up and, and they watch a projector and you'd have kind of teachers aides that are there. You could have all sorts of models that can work. I'm not against any of that, but let's start with this. Teachers rent the classrooms, 
parents get the voucher, teachers market their services, parents choose the teachers, teachers get the check, they cash the check. What are we talking about here? So, you saw the numbers earlier. LAUSD actually sends about 11000 per pupil. That includes state and federal. Um, the LAUSD local budget is a six, it's a large district, about 732,000, 733,000 students. It's a very large district, one of the largest in the country. It has a $6.78 billion budget. It's about $9,252 per student. There's 26,827 teachers. Doesn't include administrative staff or support staff. Teachers. Uh, equals about 27 students per teacher in the L.A. Unified uh, School District. There's about 1,274 schools, and there's about uh, 26,827 teachers, which you know we, we talked about earlier. It's 21 classrooms per school, basically, is what it works out to be. Um, there's about 21 classrooms per school, 27 students per teacher. These are the averages. I know... There's more and less in different schools and different classes and all of that. But these are the averages. And then, the, you know, people might be saying, oh, well, if teachers are renting their own classroom, teachers are only going to want to rent in the best neighborhoods where they're going to have the best students. Well, what you do if you're the unified school district in order to prevent that, or if that's something that you're really worried about, you just have a p- progressive classroom cost scale. So to rent a classroom in a low-income neighborhood school, maybe it only costs 2.5% of your annual revenue. But to rent a um, classroom in a high-income school, in a high-income neighborhood school, it costs 22.5% of your revenue. Now, what you're saying is, hey, you know, you can have the easy way out and go and teach the rich kids with all the resources and the tutors and all that. But you're going to make less money. You're going to make less money given the same classroom size. If you go to the poorer neighborhood, the underserved neighborhood, where you're going to have to, and, and there's a, a reason why you would price it this way, because everybody knows, and if you ever talk to a teacher that teaches at an inner city school or a low-income neighborhood, those teachers have to come out of pocket for a lot of stuff for their students just so their students can be in the classroom, so that they can have the materials that they need in order to take the notes. And, and a lot of teachers do that out of their own hard-earned money because they care about these students. They want them to be able to do well and achieve. So since they're going to be having to almost out of necessity give back more to their students, you're charging them less for that classroom because they're going to be more hands-on. They're going to have to be more hands-on. You're also saying you can make the same amount of money net-net as a high income school and take on less students. So you might have more of an incentive for people to go there, have this, a smaller classroom size and really address students that, uh, that need the help a little bit more or focus on the gifted students that are in that neighborhood that really need to be fostered a little bit more and aren't, aren't paying attention to as much. And then the, the next slide this is the 15th slide in our, our, our slideshow here. Um, basically what it is, it's a matrix and the matrix shows 15, 25, and 35 students' uh, classroom sizes. And it shows high, mid, and low-income neighborhood schools. Um, And it shows the average 
after or, or the after rent revenue for a teacher based on those kind of options. So if you're a, you have a 15 student classroom in a high income neighborhood, you'd be making about 107 grand a year. If you have that same size classroom in a low income neighborhood, you're making almost $30,000 more a year. If you have 25 students, remember this is a choice. So what we're saying is we're incentivizing people who are willing to go and take on more of a challenge in a lower income neighborhood where you don't have as much uh, parental granted resources as you do in the high income neighborhoods where, where those high, high income neighborhoods, it's very well known. A lot of those parents pay a lot of money for tutors for specific things to really raise their kids um, ability in, in that area, or at least attempt to do so. And, and at mid, middle, we're not neglecting the middle, you know, 128,000 if you're in the middle. So you're making, you know, about eight grand less than if you're at the low income, but you're still making uh, about $20,000 more than if you were doing the same classroom size in a high income neighborhood. Now let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum. 35 students. Okay, remember this is progressively priced, so it's, it's a percentage of, of what, they're, what they're bringing in, so it's based on the number of students that they have, which also makes sense because you're going to need a larger classroom size if you have more students. 35 students in a high-income neighborhood, teacher can make $251,000 in a 35-student classroom. In a low-income neighborhood, however, they'd be making almost $65,000 more a year with 35 students. And you know that those 35 student classrooms are a lot more common in low income neighborhoods than they are in high income neighborhoods. Everybody knows that common sense, common knowledge. So what is, where are the flaws with this? And you know, a lot of people listening in, they might be like, well, what about this? What about that? What about high school where you have six to eight teachers? I kind of addressed that earlier. It's simple. They voluntarily get together and create teaching teams. Teachers know each other. They travel in generally similar circles. There's, you know, groups and associations and workshops that they go to, you know, where they mingle and they, and they know each other. You'll, the teachers will find each other to plan their school year out. You have different subject teachers in high school. They'll work together as a team. So it's pretty simple. And then, you know, you know, couldn't anybody with no expertise get, you know, no credentials to teach, kind of just step in and rent a classroom? I mean, you could leave credentialing in place and just the voucher would only be able to be cashed by a certified licensed teacher or teaching organization. That's pretty simple. Um, I would kind of leave that up to the locality in my, my uh, proposal. I wouldn't mandate that that's how it's done. Um, you know, Homeschooled students achieve higher than, than public school students do. Homeschooled teachers are usually parents. They're not necessarily experts. They're not credentialed. They're not licensed, but they still do a damn good job. Now, a lot of that has to do with bonds with their own children and the fact that children learn more and better from their parents than they do from school to begin with. Um, that's why kids grow up with unbreakable habits that they learn from their, kid, their parents, even though they spend more time um, you know, in, in the classroom with their teacher early on than they do with their parent if they have a parent that's working a lot. But they still learn because they, they, those are the people that they love and they're bonded to and that they want to emulate. That's who they learn from. That's who they learn from before they ever go to school for three, four, five years. 
So, of course, they're going to learn more from their parents than they do from, from school anyways. What about next? What's the next question? How do you ensure standards? What if teachers uh, you know, just hand out, do handouts as, as much as possible to make them, themselves look good and just kind of give everybody A's? What if they just give everybody A's? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, as, as much as I am not a huge fan of, of teaching two standard or standardized exams, um, you know, having standards exams and making sure that students, upon entering, whether it's a course subject or a grade level or graduating from, from a, you know, a cohort of grade levels, that there's a standard that they have to meet in order to, pa- in order to pass They've got to have this base level of knowledge. That's pretty simple. You just have a standards exam like we do. And the other, the other way that you know that there will be standards, the market will impose standards to parents. Parents don't want their kids to be dummies. They don't want their kids to be know-nothings. You know, they want their kids to learn. And if their kid's coming home and has no clue about anything, doesn't know jack, guess what? Their parents are going to be upset. And they're going to say, this teacher's horrible. And they're going to have the freedom and the ability to move their kid from that class to another class. You know, they can do it earlier. Like people do it now. They move. It's a lot harder to do it. It would be a lot easier to do it in my system. But that's what would happen. Parents know. I mean, even poor parents want better for their kids. And if, if you understand that poor parents want better for their kids, even poor parents know when their kid's fucking stupid. And if their kid's stupid because they're not learning shit in school, they're going to be pretty fucking upset at their teacher. Or if they're learning a bunch of shit that's bullshit at their school, they're going to be really fucking upset at their teacher. And they're going to move their kid from that class to a new class. And they're going to be able to financially do that because the money's in their hands, not in some bureaucrat or school board uh, you know, elected official that's elected by like 900 people in a fucking city of 100,000, you know, they're going to be able to actually make the decision with their own money, with their own hands. You know, how do you ensure that there are not uh, teachers doing bad things and getting away with it by using their newfound wealth, you know, from this last example, the last chart that we uh, showed, chart number 15, how do we make sure that uh, those teachers with all that newfound wealth aren't doing horrible things and just paying people off to get away with that? Um, well, the school grounds will still uh, be city-owned property. I said, you know, turn the school board into basically a real estate management company. You wouldn't have, really have the unions. I mean, you might have the unions. They'd have a lot, lot less power. But I would just, at school property, I would just put cameras in every fucking classroom. I mean, we should do that now anyways, but then you're able to constantly record, you know, classroom behavior. You can even audit teachers. I mean, you know, I mean, then you can see, you know, if a teacher's fucking inappropriately touching a student. Yeah. People want to fucking know about that. Parents want to know about that shit. We can put cameras in, in every classroom. They're leasing this classroom. It's, it's, they don't, you know, necessarily have the right to privacy. It's not their property. They're just leasing it for their for the use during you know the time that they need to use it to teach their class and earn their living. That's it, like any other profession when you rent an office. Now, what about elective classes? Um, you know, arts, physical education, music, things like that. 
You know, are, wouldn't those be neglected under a system like this? Well, I, I'd have to say that, uh, you know, and especially somebody who has a mother who's a teacher, teachers are usually really big proponents of those classes for two main reasons. A, it keeps their students motivated because some students may like arts more, may like PE more, but that's one of the things that they look forward to. So it keeps them excited about the day. And the second reason is because it gives them an opportunity to do some, you know, grading of schoolwork, to do some of the general administrative part of being a teacher and to uh, plan some of the upcoming classes or plan homework or whatever it is. So teachers generally like that. And I am sure that most teachers, not all, but most teachers would chip in to pool uh, their money with the other teachers that lease classrooms at that same uh, location and uh, hire physical ed, arts, second language, computer teachers, all of those. They would hire them. It'd be easily affordable. And those who didn't want to do this and didn't want to participate or didn't want to be a part of, of a school, which I, I think it'd probably be hard pressed to find a school that was run this way where those, those options were not offered. I just don't see it working that way because it'd be too hard to compete. Uh, most parents want their kids to have that. But the ones that didn't offer it, and there's some schools that don't offer it now, they would be marketing to that niche group of parents who don't want that, who want extra, um, extra academic emphasis, don't want the physical ed, don't want the arts. If they're going to get arts or physical ed, they'll do that on their own. They just, when they're in school, they want it to be purely academic. And there's some parents who want that for their kids. They can have that for their kids, and there will be certain niche uh, groups of teachers or individual teachers who will market towards that and won't spend the money on maybe they'd reinvest that money in something else for the students, but they wouldn't spend the money on, on pulling it together and hiring a PE or an arts teacher or whatever. Um, it'd be a little bit different for that group, but that's, that, that would be their niche. That's where they would fall. So those are my frequently asked, asked questions that I kind of personally came up with. I'm sure people that listen to this will have a ton more. Hopefully you will, uh, you know, kind of, Go to our Facebook page, uh, comment on there. Go to our uh, Twitter, shoot me, you know, drop me a tweet. Um, you know, and you can ask questions and, and try to poke holes in this system. I think it's one that works really, really well. It's a system of competition. It's where the best professionals will rise to the top. And the best professionals will be paid, uh, you know, they will be compensated according to the level of challenge and their level of achievement and the, the brand that they're able to build around teaching, just like anything else that we embrace in life. Everything in life, we embrace competition. Like, could you imagine if we had a system of professional athletics that was similar to the way that teaching is, where where you lived was the team that you went and played for? That was it. That was the only option you had. And they paid you whatever they were willing to pay you at that particular uh, team. Now compare that to being a student. Obviously, it's a little bit different because it's paid for taxes by a third party, a.k.a. the government, uh, who takes money from people first and then gives it you know, to the school boards and redistributes school boards. The school boards allocate it. They say, this is what we need. This, and they're all the experts, and they know exactly what we need, right? But kids have to go to the school and have to have the teacher 
based on where they're li- where they live, where they were born. Now imagine if you're a professional football player, and based on where you were born or where you live at the time, where your parents live at the time, you're stuck with that coach, with that GM, and with that contract, and you cannot move unless your parents are willing to move. And you don't have the money to do it because they weren't willing to pay you enough to do it. You know, I mean, you know, and it would just be, you'd be stuck. You'd be stuck in a, a, a situation that you would hate. And you'd start to build, you'd have animosity start to build up towards the system around you. And you'd think that you're being given a short end of the stick. Now, I do want to bring up that generally, no matter where you go to school, you'll have some good and some bad teachers. And that's why I brought this idea up because I think that everybody's preaching the idea of school choice. I don't like kids even being locked into a school. I want teacher choice and I want teachers to have the ability to make a lot of money base. You saw how much more money you'd be making base under my system. If you're a teacher out there questioning this, you'd be making way more than you make currently, way more than you make currently. Even if you only had 15 kids in a class, in a high-income neighborhood, you'd still be making more than you make currently. But you could make potentially five, six, seven times what you make currently if you're a teacher. If you were to take on a big challenge and succeed at it, and you'd be able to perpetuate that, uh, that income stream going forward for your entire career, and you become really wealthy if you put that money aside and you save it. But generally you're going to have some good and some bad teachers and you're going to have teachers that vibe with some students and vibe with others. Um, what you need is you really need more power in the control of parents. You, know, you need more power in the hands of parents. You need more control by the parents. You need the parents to be able to make more decisions. Even poor parents want the best for their kids and know if their kid is not learning. If their kid is as dumb as they were when they were five and they're seven they know that their kid's not learning anything at school. If they graduate kindergarten and don't know the ABCs, they know that that teacher sucked. It's not that hard to figure out. And if they had an option, other than uprooting my family and moving somewhere that I may not be able to afford and causing emotional trauma when we get evicted because we're living in a neighborhood that we can't afford, instead of having that option, she might be willing to, hey, maybe I wake up 30 minutes earlier. I go and get on a bus. And, and I should say she or he, there's fathers out there that do this too, you know, go and get on a bus and take your kid down the street you know, up or cross town, pick a different teacher. There's no good teachers in your neighborhood. I would venture to say that my system would drive most of the best or at least the most intelligent um, and the, the teachers that felt as though could handle the challenge and, and, and make a living off of that. So I'll say this, you go to a poor neighborhood and you do it just for the money. They're going to, they, they, they will, you will be, uh, what is the word for exiled from that neighborhood? Nobody will want you around if you're a bad teacher there. So you're taking on a challenge. You're going to have to do a good job. You're going to be held accountable because now parents can take their kids out of your class and go somewhere else and you lose that money stream going forward from that student. So you need that student to achieve. You need that student to not just achieve, but to impressively achieve to their parents, to where their parents can tell 
from their everyday conversations with them that their child is learning. Part of that is logic. That's why I, I, I'm going back to it, but it's, it's an extremely important part of life. You've got to have basic deductive abilities to be able to say this is either true or not true based on the logic of it, based on whether or not it's able to hold true in an argument. The way that you do that is you question yourself, you question your own arguments, you, you try to poke holes in it. But the other way that you, you do that early on, you know, other than, than having kids question everything, the way that you teach logic is through what's, what are called logic, logic tests. And it's pretty simple. You, you know, we had these when I was in the gifted program growing up. I think every kid should learn it. But you have a, you know, four or five bullet points that are kind of a sentence or half sentence about, you know, maybe it's a picnic. And there's five items that are brought. And you find out three of the items that were brought from three of the people that were brought. And you've got to find out which item one of the two remaining brought. And you know, you know, maybe it gives you the time that something had to be picked up and the fact that this, this person was at a situation so wouldn't have been able to pick up that thing. You're, you figure it out. You have to figure it out. By deducing, it couldn't have been this person. It couldn't have been that person. This person brought that thing. This person couldn't have made it in time to pick up that option. So the final option is, well, so-and-so brought the item that you were thinking of to the picnic. And it's a logic exam that you use deductive reasoning to be able to figure out the answer. You use your mind. You figure out a solution. It's a pointless, seemingly meaningless exercise. But what it does is it teaches you how to dissect things that are true and not true, not true based on logic. Being able to say that, well, that's not necessarily possible. If you consider these other scenarios or if you consider what it, some of these unintended situations that may occur, we live in a much better world where people will, will, will look beyond just a singular group or look beyond just the back, macro general picture and will be able to say, here's the in, in, you know, immediate effect, here's the intermediate effect, Here's the long-term effect. We've got to be able to make smart decisions about these things. And just spending more money on our education system is not the answer. We've already seen that. We spend a ton of money on it. We spend a ton of money on it. We've got to come up with a new model. And the model, you know, look, the curriculum that we're, we're teaching, it's not horrible. You know, it's not, it's not like we're teaching our children like just really bad false things. It's just the kids aren't learning. They're not retaining the knowledge and they're not retaining the knowledge at the pace that you would expect given the amount of money that you would, that, that we've spent. They're not increasing their ability to retain knowledge at the pace that you would expect given the amount of money you would, that we've spent on our education system. So the question is, why is that? And I think that it, it has to do with the model. I think that there that we have a model that doesn't necessarily incentivize the best of teachers. And it definitely doesn't incentivize uh, the, the students that are out there right now. Everything's cookie cutter and, and one size fits all. There's no customization in, in education. There's nothing that tries to foster children's early passions 
there's nothing that tries to to uh, you know, invigorate the create creative and entrepreneurial spirit of younger people. There's nothing that presents vocational opportunities early on in life as respectable, uh, well-earning way, uh, you know, well-earning opportunities. We don't have any of those things. You know, there's no way to motivate these kids, and you know, the the, the motivation to do good in school is, well, do you want to get into a good college? That's it. That's the answer. The stock answer to why should I do good in high school or why should I care about this is, do you want to do good when, do you want to get into a good college? That's not the answer to it because you should enjoy learning. You should enjoy trying to figure out the things that are around you and having the skill set and, and, and the brain capacity from using your brain over time to be able to figure out things when things aren't going right and understand the world around you. Be able to make good decisions for yourself and for your family. Be able to make good decisions about your life. To be able to decide who's lying and who's not. And to, furthermore, to be able to come up with and, and not only come up with, but accept and embrace new ideas that can work really, really well. And to understand that in every single aspect of life, competition tends to work pretty well. Only area where you don't really want competition is local law enforcement because that's called gang rule. You don't want two police forces fighting it out, arresting opposite sides. You know, you don't want stuff like that. But other than that, that's not how school works. School, you want competition. You want best practices to come about. You want the ability for there to be innovation and, and, and new models of how to deliver information to kids where they're going to be able to retain it better. And you want that to then be able to be emulated, to be able to be discovered, emulated, progressed upon, made better. And you want our children's ability to retain knowledge, increase, and you want it to increase at a faster and faster pace at earlier and earlier ages. Those are the goals, the results. The intentions do not fucking matter. The road that serfdom is paved in good intentions. The road to destruction is paved in good intentions. The road to poverty is paved in good intentions. Good intentions should not be the basis of our public policy, and it definitely shouldn't be the basis of our public policy when it comes to education. What we need to do is we need to find models that work, that deliver good results, and we need to find ways to get people to emulate those models around the country for students everywhere and to progress upon those models and make those models better. Well, I hope that everybody enjoyed our episode today. I'm going to be wrapping it up here, uh, closing in on just about a full hour uh, long episode tonight. Might, might end up being a little bit short of that. I hope everybody enjoyed it. Check us out on uh, Facebook. It's facebook.com slash the macro view. We're also on Twitter at The Macro View. Uh, this is the live broadcast on Blog Talk Radio. If you're listening to it later, uh, you might be listening on Podbean where you can find us or on Google Play where you can find us. Still not sure about iTunes. iTunes is a little bit odd and hard to figure out, but I'll get on top of that. I'm working on getting the website up. Hopefully, we'll have a website up within the next two or three weeks. Um, and on there, we'll have all the past episodes. We'll have extended descriptions of the episode. 
We may transcript certain parts of the episodes. Um, the other thing that we're going to do on there is we're going to provide the charts that we talk about. Cause I know if you're listening on Podbean, you don't really get to see the charts or if you're listening on Google play, you don't get to see the charts. So you'll have a spot to go where you can get the charts. You can get all the sources for those charts. You get all the sources for the numbers that I talk about. And I may elaborate on some of my arguments towards things because sometimes an hour just isn't long enough. And sometimes arguments can be a little bit better elaborated upon in writing. So once again, website will be up pretty soon here. I uh, hope everybody's enjoying it. See, we, we're getting some, some upticks in the number of people that are listening. Uh, if you're out there listening, please share it with your friends. Let's get this logic movement uh, you know, rolling and snowballing. Let's get more people on board. Let's get more people on board with using statistics, with using reasoning, with using real-life data, not just anecdotes and feelings and intentions, as the, solution, as the, guiding, uh, you know, the guiding philosophy behind our solutions. If we do that, we're going to live in a really good world. We already do. We live in a great world. It's more peaceful than ever. Technology is getting better than ever. It's getting just exponentially better and better, making people's lives better and better, and employing more and more people, and not just here in America, but around the world. So everything's great, but we can make it a lot, a lot better if we would use a little bit of logic, if we would use a little bit of reason, and if we would understand the real numbers and how a lot of these, a lot of these crises that the government likes, likes to pitch are really manufactured just in, in, in an effort to try to create a new department or try to grant money and subsidies to certain organizations that have political pull over you know, a lot of political pull over uh, both sides of the aisle. So let's fix our education system. Let's do it by introducing competition. And I mean the most radical form of competition. Let's turn teachers into individual businesses and let's turn school boards into nothing more than real estate management companies where they lease those classrooms to teachers. Teachers will make a lot more money. There'll be competition. You'll have best practices and innovation. You'll have students that are actually learning things under some models. You may have a year that's lost for a student over here, but then they're going to move to a teacher that has a much better model that teaches them and they're going to be better for it. Every kid will be better for this system and the future will be better for this system because we'll have kids that will have creativity, their passions will have been fostered, and they'll have the basic knowledge to go forward and make the world a better place. This is the Macro View. I'm Andrew Smith signing off tonight. Hope you guys enjoyed the episode. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.